Greetings, I'm Kate Blanchett, and I'd like to welcome you back to Postplay, Stateless. In this final episode, we'll be talking about the real events and policies that shape the stories we touch on in Stateless. And we'll discuss how immigration systems, both in Australia and around the world, have evolved since the time in which the series was set, and also the impact that these systems have had on the ongoing global displacement crisis. I had the chance to catch up with the extraordinary Gillian Triggs, who's the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. And she's also a fellow Australian. Originally put in place to help displaced people after the Second World War, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees is a United Nations agency with the mandate to protect refugees, forcibly displaced communities and stateless people and assist their safe, voluntary repatriation, local integration or resettlement in a third country. I've had the great pleasure of speaking with Gillian on a number of occasions in my role as a UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador, and it's always been an enlightening experience. I met a 12-year-old in detention. She'd lost her entire family and made her way across the Indian Ocean, and she told me all about how she was terrified of the sharks, she was terrified of the waves, dehydrated, the desperate loss of her parents, but she was completely calm and composed. And then she said, I've been here in detention for a year with no schooling. And then she burst into tears. And today's episode gave me another excuse to catch up with my dear friends and series co-creators, Tony Ayres and Elise McCready, one last time. When I was writing Stateless, I'd often wake up in a kind of cold sweat thinking, what if I get it wrong? And the responsibility to tell these stories and doing them justice. I think it's up to the people who have a voice to speak and or give an opportunity for other people who don't have a voice to be heard. I was curious to know what motivated Gillian to get involved in the refugee cause after coming from a five-year term as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. Well, I think perhaps I should say that I really begin as a good old-fashioned lawyer. I've always had this great sense that the rule of law, of justice, of access to justice, were really important. And so for much of my career, I was actually a commercial international lawyer and worked in those areas. But When I was appointed as president of the Australian Human Rights Commission, I came at a particular point in time in 2012 when all of this exploded and stateless shows that. Although I was working on human rights generally, and that might be rights of Indigenous peoples, the rights of the elderly, people with disabilities, I found that as time went by, my energies were being taken up very much by exactly what you're depicting, and that is those detention centres that were in Australia, where people were being isolated miles away from contact with lawyers, contact with social workers, with their families and so on. So then, of course, I became more and more concerned that children were being detained under what, of course, was a long-standing mandatory detention policy in Australia that no other country in the world has had. It was very important to us to have the character of Mina, Mm. to have a child's experience of a girl transitioning from childhood rapidly into adulthood and almost having her childhood ripped from her when you've actually seen that on the way to that experience and to be detained in Australia, she's lost her mother and her sister and in fact has been fleeing persecution. It was a very, very important Mm. story to tell. Mm. I asked Gillian about the millions of people in the world today who are displaced and how it compares to when the UN started its work in this space after the Second World War. 
The Refugee Convention that was designed to deal with some of these problems is now 70 years old. They were dealing at the time after the Second World War with relatively tiny numbers, you know, one, two, three million people, but certainly nothing comparable to what we're dealing with today. The numbers for those who register as internally displaced and as asylum seekers and refugees are about 80 million Mm. and rising. And these are horrifying numbers. In the short time that I've been working with UNHCR, it's gone up 19 million. Mm -hmm. Stateless is set in the early 2000s and you see a situation where refugees were detained on arrival while they await for immigration Department processing for the application of asylum. Could you just describe the difference of the policy then to where we've got to today? The period around stateless was a time where the principle of mandatory detention for those arriving by boat without a visa had been in place for many years. And the detention centre that's depicted in stateless represented that policy. But In Stateless, it's depicted that demonstrators are starting to come. The Australian Human Rights Commission is coming. There was a sense that this was not working. It was distasteful. It was wrong for Australia. The world should know what they are doing to us here. Soon they will. On Sunday, people from outside Australians, they are coming from everywhere to protest against this. How we are locked up. But all we seek is freedom. That is all I want. Good. We need to be heard. We need to be seen. So what happened next in Australia? What happened when the majority of onshore detention centres moved offshore? In 2013, a few years after the period of stateless, we found ourselves in a very different legal and political position where the Australian government adopted the policy that anybody arriving in Australian waters or being brought to Australian waters, having been rescued at sea without a visa, coming as an unlawful maritime arrival, which was the language, should go immediately to Manus or Nauru. Mm. And they would never be settled ever in Australia as a permanent visa holder. After the period that Stateless is dealing with, what emerged was something even worse, which was to externalise or to place the burden of dealing with asylum seekers and refugees on other states and other nations, poorer and much more dependent on the development dollar. Manus Island is an island to the west of Papua New Guinea. It's part of Papua New Guinea. It's, It's relatively isolated and has an agreement with Australia to undertake assessment of refugees and, in effect, retain them there in that country until a permanent solution is found. Nauru is also an independent sovereign nation. It is very largely dependent on Australian aid. It's been a phosphate island mined by Britain and New Zealand and Australia. So it's had a rather sad history. But it's now revived rather paradoxically with the income coming in from taking these refugees. It takes my breath away Mm. and it makes me terribly sad that it doesn't seem to be able to get traction in the national conversation. Mm. And when you consider that the bulk of refugees are housed in, as you said, impoverished countries, so-called first world countries, really don't bear the burden at all. Mm -hmm. Can you see that there's some sort of solution in sight? Do we have to leave it to the powers that be? I'm very much in favour of individual advocacy and for speaking up, but ultimately power lies with governments and governments of sovereign states. And what is really encouraging, in a way, paradoxically, that in 2018 we had the what was called a global compact for refugees, and that compact picked up the idea that we would 
share the burden and responsibilities for refugees across the world and for stateless people and for those internally displaced. And that was a great moment in United Nations Refugee Agency history because overwhelmingly the international community accepted that principle. At the moment, of course, um, 85% of displaced people, refugees are stateless, are actually looked after by the poorest countries in the world. So that was the idea behind it and it was a very inspiring moment. But then came COVID and COVID has led to 161 countries closing their borders completely, most of them denying or many of them denying access to asylum and some of them even returning asylum seekers to the place of danger. What I've noticed is there's a tendency to conflate refugees and migrants or to refer mm-hmm. to refugees as a subcategory mm-hmm. of uh, migrants. And that can have serious consequences for the lives and safety of people who are actually fleeing persecution and conflict. But without question, all people who move between countries deserve full respect for their human rights. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with those misunderstandings? It can be difficult and sometimes a slogan can help. A refugee is not a migrant, and a migrant is not a refugee. A migrant is seeking a better life, better opportunities, moving for all sorts of reasons, family reunions, job opportunities, labour, education, and simply seeking a better life. And nobody, certainly least of all me, would ever be critical of that. And everybody who moves around the world is entitled to fundamental human rights. That is clear. But a refugee is very different. A refugee is fleeing conflict and persecution, discrimination of a life-endangering kind. So perhaps the key is that there's no real choice to being a refugee. You are fleeing brutal armed conflict. In other cases, it's racial discrimination. It's intertribal discriminations. There are many reasons. But essentially, it's where you do not have a choice, where you flee for your family's safety. That is different from somebody who has a better possibility of making choices. And a migrant will make a choice that they want to move for any number of perfectly acceptable reasons. But they are different from refugees. Another building block to inspire progress is that we must, on a global level, try to understand and empathise with the events and situations which have forced people to flee their homes in search of safety. We perhaps don't always understand just how dire the circumstances are for people in a war in Syria that's gone on for so long, in Afghanistan, in the horrors of Myanmar where people are denied even the simplest access to nationality, leading to nearly a million people fleeing. And, of course, parlous situations of civil war and conflict in parts of Africa, along with food security, climate changes, that are all interconnected. And I think we have to understand this better and to understand the responsibility that we all have to try to get across this divide of inequality. It is truly shocking, Mm. and I think we can do it. But we do need leadership, we do need advocates, and we need the human story to be told. So that's why I think Stateless will shine a light on the variety. I mean, that's what's interesting about the programme. You you have somebody who's coming as an Afghan refugee and a child, but you've also got somebody who's mentally ill and has been abused in other ways and, as you say, poetically lost, along with others who've come Mm. from other parts of the world and in different circumstances. Mm. Stateless is nuanced. The guards aren't all bad. The director comes to feel that this is not a way forward. So it's nuanced, and I think people respond to nuance because it's closer to the truth. We hoped by placing a white German-Australian woman at the sort of centre of the story that people could feel, rightly, I think, that that could be me. You know, we're only a step away, as COVID-19 has shown us, I think, that, that our lives can completely change in an instant. 
and so many refugees I've met have literally had to flee in an instant. You talked earlier about not having a visa. Not only do they not have a visa, they don't have a passport. They don't have any form of identification. And I think that's why we need leadership and advocacy to encourage us to be the best we can. We've had open societies and welcoming societies in the past. Let us get back to that. And maybe in these dark days of COVID, we will start to see that it's the fact that we're in this together. I find it quite bewildering that it doesn't stick for people. It's very difficult to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. People often ask me as a UNHCR Goodwill Ambassador, what can I do? And I always say that language is very important. The way we talk about it, the way we challenge xenophobic discourse just in our day-to-day lives in the supermarket or, you know, with the person who's delivering your mail or, or someone you might meet at a dinner party. But what would you say when people ask, what can we do? I have become an advocate for speaking up generally. I think that each of us has a responsibility to speak up. Get your facts right. Make sure what you're saying is measured and fair But we cannot turn our back as citizens on this reality. And I've come to see the importance of leadership, but not only leadership of political leaders, but leadership in every part of your life. To be able to speak up clearly on these injustices, I think, has become critical. And maybe over time, people have become less and less willing to do that. But at the same time, there are many, many people around the world who are very conscious of these injustices and do speak up. But we need people to speak up in the community generally who can speak to the personal story. Mm. I met a 12-year-old in detention and she was bright, intelligent, shining eyes, telling me her parents had been killed in Kenya. And she was smuggled out by an aunt who had a little bit of money and went with people smugglers. She'd lost her entire family and made her way across the Indian Ocean. And she told me all about how she was terrified of the sharks, she was terrified of the waves, dehydrated, the desperate loss of her parents. But she was completely calm and composed. And then she said, I've been here in detention for a year with no schooling. And then she burst into tears. And that's when I really understood that she saw that her future was at an end if she didn't have access to some education. There was not much I could do for her, Mm. but I have wanted to tell her story in the only way that perhaps a lawyer can. I think that's what I'm really trying to say to people. If you see these injustices, speak up. It can be done, but you need the political will. And that is why one has to get out of one's comfort zone in a way and speak to people who completely disagree with the principles of providing asylum to people who need it. So that's the real challenge, Kate, I think. Mm. Have I grilled you enough? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> no, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, but absolutely. Thank you, Kate, for all your wor- the work that you're doing, and I uh, hope we'll see you again. Thank you. When I caught up with Elise and Tony, we were discussing what led us to tell the particular stories that we've told in Stateless. Something you said, Kate, right at the beginning of this whole process, you talked about how you wanted to tell stories about things that we don't see. That's kind of really stayed with me through Stateless and I think it's kind of made me think more about the work that I do beyond Stateless as well. It's up to the people who have a voice to speak and or give an opportunity for other people who don't have a voice to be heard. We don't speak for them, but we might be able to give them, you know, a platform. And I think that that was also really fundamental to what we were trying to do in Stateless. We're trying to give a voice to the voiceless. Mm. Netflix is the ideal platform for Stateless because it gives us a chance to speak to more people than we could possibly have spoken to in any other way. 
Netflix has a broader reach than any other broadcasting vehicle that I'm aware of. And, you know, audiences, I think, are through the whole streaming revolution. They're prepared to try something out, something that they may not have tried before. And that's what television is great at. You know, people say, oh, well, I... sample it. Yeah, yeah, you can, yeah. And I, I think it's... You might be- not want to go to a refugee movie, but, oh, there's a show... Well, I'll try that and see if I like it. It's a less commitment, less of a commitment than mm. going to the movies. Not that we're allowed to do that. It's a great way of kind of luring people into a story and a series and surprising them, and hopefully they end up loving it. Mm. But they may not have necessarily chosen that in a different format. And also, there are many different audiences in the world, and I think that in every country there might be a relatively small niche audience for a particular kind of work. But the ones that aren't passionate yeah. will want to watch Kate dancing and so they'll at least watch the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, the show is not hard work. It's not. It's it's surprising. And I think that that's part of the strategy of how we chose to tackle the subject. When I was writing it, I'd often wake up in a kind of cold sweat thinking, you know, who am I? What right do I have to, to tell these stories? And and then this enormous kind of the uh, sort of dual nightmare of then, you know, what if I get it wrong? And and it, this responsibility of these stories that were being told to me and, you know, doing it justice. So for me, the audience response that fills me to the brim and fills me also with such relief and happiness is from those people that have emailed me or rung me, the advocates who got together every night to watch an episode and then all talked it was like a sort of therapy session for them because there were many of them that helped from nuns to women whose children were growing up. And then the refugees, of course, themselves who, who'd experienced actual detention centres who, you know, I was terrified that, that they would feel that maybe I hadn't gone hard or we hadn't gone hard enough, whatever it was. But I think those reactions from the people that we spoke to and the people that lived it and including the bureaucrats who've emailed too to say, yeah, you got it right. You did the work and you were truthful and faithful to the story and that they feel very appreciative that their story, from whatever side they were on, was told truthfully. Now, it might sound counterintuitive, but in order to engage with a broader audience, we felt that it was vital to get to the nitty-gritty, the particulars of the subject matter, which could, at first, perhaps seem quite niche. I've heard a lot of filmmakers and quote-unquote storytellers talk about the need for things to be absolutely specific to place and time and location in order to have a universal impact. We've seen it recently with shows like Unorthodox. Often the tighter you go in and the more specific you go into a story... I think the more, the wider the audience is, and that's what I guess we all hope with this series and we've always hoped all along that the specificity will reach a really broad audience out of curiosity, if nothing else. Mm. I think when you talk about the general, you lean towards the generic. And I think the thing that people respond to is the truth. Like when you're being specific, what you're doing is you're being very truthful. And that's what we were always trying to do on Stateless. It was always about how can we find the truth of these people, this time, this place. And I hope that that's what a worldwide audience will do. They will see the truth of those things and they will feel the truth of those things. And I think that truth resonates. And often for me as an audience member, when I get thrown out of something, it's because it doesn't feel truthful to me anymore. It feels contrived, concocted. Mm. I think the general leads to the generic, leads to the false. And I think that one of the beauties of Elise and Belinda's writing was they always try to make things feel truthful. And I think that's how things become universal. So the specific leads to the truth, leads to the universal. And I think that's what we do achieve in Stateless. 
It's interesting you say that, Tony, because you know I think that's probably why it took us a long time to get stateless up. People hear the word refugee and it doesn't touch upon their lives. I think that it's somehow by speaking to the refugee issue and having characters who seem to have nothing in common in Stateless converge upon the same human dilemma and the same human drives of wanting a better life, wanting to move on and wanting to do their best. You see that connective tissue between the so-called us and them. Another way in which I hope that Stateless resonates at the moment is that we are seeing a lot of systems go mad. We talk about a particular system that has gone mad, but I think... All around the world right now, everyone is seeing just how mad so many of our social systems are, so many institutions of government. I think that we're all fearing that we're at this tipping point. An unstable system can suddenly collapse. And I think that one of the things we talk about in Stateless is the collapse of an unstable system. The subject matter we deal with in Stateless is about divisive politics and politics that set out to divide opinion really clearly on the us and them front, that refugees are separate and different and in many ways not human in the way we are. Drama offers an opportunity to invite an audience to connect with experiences outside their own. Now on the surface, Stateless is about refugees and asylum seekers, but as Tony says, it is also about a system gone mad. And indeed, the madness that these systems induce in the people whose lives they touch. At the core of Stateless is Barton Detention Centre, a place of chaos and change for all our characters. By the time we get to the final episode, all four characters have had transformative journeys. Mm. Cam has been on one side of the fence for most of the series and in the face of what he's witnessed and what he's been asked to do, has really questioned whether he should be on that side of the fence, ultimately walking away. The Department of Immigration, Dimmer, they decide all of that. They'll give you a call when you've got an interview scheduled, okay? Your family, anyone know where you are? I'll tell you what, this is a phone card. Pay phones are over there, you can make an international call. Give someone a ring at home, let them know you're okay. The police have already been here. Yeah, you promised me there was nothing going on. I saw your car driving to pick them up. Did you arrange for the breakout, huh? Hey, uh, Brian, listen, mate, I, um, I know where they are. What was I supposed to do, you know? What chance did they have on the run, huh? All they had to do was wait. He was violent and he hit you. He was fighting back. What was he supposed to do? She just kept laying in there. Oh, oh. He just dropped. He was crying. I just stood there. I didn't do shit. You know, if I say something, though, that's it, right? Claire has a not dissimilar journey to Cam, but ultimately she doesn't walk away because she is a true believer in the sense that she does believe that we need an immigration policy She's in no way someone who would overtly blow the whistle on a system. So whatever she does is covert. Mm. We all felt passionately that Claire shouldn't be someone who walks off, that she will stay and she will still try and find solutions. But I think you hope when you witness the final episode that there will be a greater level of humanity in Claire as she goes forward. Australia's detention regime is a reflection of our highly developed migration system. We can hold you in isolation. You will have no contact with the outside world, no contact with your family. The department has a responsibility for the safety and well-being of everyone in Barton. You know what's getting to me? People are dying coming here. Families are being destroyed. I've got a 12-year-old girl on suicide watch. She's 12 years old. It's not a fucking thing I can do to get her out of Barton. Amir has really lost everything by the final episode. A man who has done nothing but seek 
freedom and safety for his family has in the process of doing that lost everything he has. But I also think that because of the character he is, there's still a light in his eyes. There's still a hope that Amir will get out, will find his daughter, will live a good, honourable life, which he's managed to do against all odds throughout the series. I want to tell you a story. Hey, wait. Stop! He's taken our papers and left us here. There's no boat. Is your room TOR 076? Please, it's been a mistake. I am not a criminal. Do you know my wife, Najiba? Sadika is seven. Amina is 12. I'm a school teacher. I'm a father. A man of faith. Why can't you see all of that when you look at me? Inside here, we only see the past, Minishan. When you are outside, you will see the future. And then your dreams will change. I promise. And Sophie, the environment of imprisonment and abuse from guards and unresolved trauma just build and build in her until the tenuous hold on reality and she loses it. Ultimately, Sophie can't distinguish anymore between what is real and what is not real. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! This year's solo by Sophie Werner. My name is Eva Hoffman. I am just a silly backpacker who has lost her passport. I don't belong here. No, you don't. It isn't safe for me to say who I really am because someone might find me. We don't know whether she's safe or not at the end. I think that's the tragedy of Sophie. But also you, you can interpret it either way as well because you can see that she has been saved by her sister. She's been found at least. The number of forcibly displaced people in the world is increasing at a staggering rate. It's a pressing global problem, but it doesn't seem to be getting the focus it deserves. There's just no media space for it, so that that massive jump in displaced people is not getting coverage. Those stories are not being told in the media just because the media is so filled with everything else that is going on. Mm. We're so bound up, obviously, in the day-to-day domestic crises and the impact that the world has on our own lives and the lives of our own communities, but the more you engage, the more ability you have to engage, and that, in fact, there's so much connective tissue between all these seemingly disparate, quote-unquote, causes. I remember my um, eldest son saying when I was, to me when I was pregnant with um, our second child, he, he was very concerned that I wouldn't, we wouldn't have enough space to love him anymore. And it's a really simple thing you tell your kids. It's like the more you love, the more capacity you have. There's a domino effect. If, if you start to tackle one area, you end up, like if you, xenophobic language, racist language, if you start to, to tackle that and, you know, your, your everyday life, then you will also encounter xenophobic preconceptions about refugees. There's a connective tissue there. I'm not signing off. I'm (laughs) stalking you both. (laughs) So this is not goodbye. Lovely to see you both. Lovely to see you both. Yes, you too. I'm really proud of what we did. Incredibly, we all still like each other and are talking to each other. And want to work together again. (laughs) And that's pretty wonderful because it's been a long, a long road. So it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, but we creatively, we, we worked through everything together collaboratively. We should be very proud that we made Stateless. There were lots of things that weren't easy, but one thing that was easy was the creative. One thing that worked was the collusion of creative visions. You know, like we all Mm. kind of got what we were trying to do. And I think that that was the thing that made it worthwhile when other things got tough. And the collaborators, Belinda Chaco and directors Emma Freeman and Jocelyn Morehouse and Bonnie Elliott, uh, incredible DOP, Melinda Doring. Melinda Doring, designer. Extraordinary set. So it was a real um, meeting of of wonderful, creative, passionate minds who all believed 
um, absolutely. You know, and including the, the cast. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Let alone, let alone the cast. Just from what you were saying, Tony, that, and we are signing off. See, we've got to keep talking. We can cut all this out. But I think what, what I really relished, and it's not always the case, is that when you deal with situations like this and issues like this, you always feel like everybody, we're singing from the same hymn book and we're all in, in, in harmonious concord all of the time. And what I loved about the way we worked, and then I really will hold on to as a, you know, bit of a guiding light, is that we had robust discussions about stuff and we yeah. didn't always necessarily agree on points, but we had a common goal. And having three is always good for that because yeah. <laughs> if, you, if yeah. you're the odd one out. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also how the best work gets made. I mean, the best work is made through constant and tireless, even at the point of exhaustion, interrogation. You just keep going and it's like we did all feel so strongly for this subject and for the world and for the commitment that everyone put to it that you just felt like you had to give your best to this. And I think everyone felt that. Mm. And everyone did. I'm Kate Blanchett, and my special thanks extend to my guests in this episode, Gillian Triggs, Elise McCready and Tony Ayres. Thanks, Kate. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Postplay Stateless. This has been a Story Hunter production in association with Matchbox Pictures and Dirty Films for Netflix. You can find a full list of credits in the show notes. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Stateless is currently streaming on Netflix. Netflix.